This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Holden Caulfield quipped, I'm the most terrific liar you ever saw in your life. But Twitter has him beat by a country mile. Twitter executives long insisted, we never rig our platform to censor conservatives. Well, that was a lie. Former CEO Jack Dorsey was asked point blank under oath by Congress if his social media company, quote, shadow banned prominent Republicans. No, he replied with a straight face. Another lie. Dorsey doubled down when he told Sean Hannity, we do not shadow ban according to political ideology or viewpoints. <laughs> that wasn't even close to the truth. In fact, Twitter was operating a giant political censorship machine applied with brute computer force. Tweets involving Democrats were amplified. Derogatory information about Joe Biden, that was suppressed. And anyone who dared to criticize them found themselves diminished or vanished. Twitter didn't like the pejorative term shadow ban. So what did they do? Well, they invented a synonymous in-house phrase. They called it visibility filtering. Same thing, different jargon. They even composed a blacklist. If you were on it, bye-bye. Now, thanks to the transparency of the company's new owner, Elon Musk, the so-called Twitter files have laid bare the cavalcade of lies and devious machinations that we all suspected were happening behind closed doors. A super censor team that included Dorsey and a guy by the name of Yul Roth, who is the global head of trust and safety. These are the guys who made many of the key decisions to kill legitimate stories, to banish people whose views they didn't like. If you offered information or opinion with which the progressive elites at Twitter disagreed or objected, well, your tweets would magically disappear into a cyber black hole. Your followers would strangely dwindle. Any ideas and thoughts that didn't conform strictly to Twitter's woke orthodoxy of ideological purity were censored. Twitter wasn't practicing responsible content moderation, as they publicly claimed. No, they were unscrupulously enforcing a system of content oblivion. These are despicable people who have earned our universal contempt. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is the brief with Greg Jarrett. Billionaire investor Michael Pinto has a warning for you. 
Don't listen to anyone who tells you how bad the crash will be and when it exactly will happen. Nobody knows. But the CEO of Wells Fargo warns the worst is yet to come for Americans. Pay attention to the economic data. Inflation is at a 40-year high. And make no mistake about it, the recession is real, no matter how the White House tries to change the definition. That's why Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, and Jim Cramer are all calling for gold to surge. Gold and silver have historically moved opposite the stock market and in the long term can preserve your purchasing power. Call 800-809-8500 and Lear Capital, the number one rated gold company, will present the same trusted options they have been giving successful investors since 1997. At Lear Capital, most IRA rollovers qualify for no IRA fees for up to five years. Their current incentive offers up to $15,000 in bonus silver for well-qualified new customers. A three-minute call can protect your portfolio with the power of real physical gold. Call 800-809-8500 today. Again, that's 800-809-8500 and tell them Greg Jarrett sent you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Pre-Elon Musk, Twitter contributed mightily to the alarming erosion of free speech in America. Over time, it became a sad monument to narrow-minded intolerance. Imperious executives were morally bankrupt, intellectually corrupt. They robbed people of the chance for speech they might wish to hear or to engage in vigorous public debate. It was antithetical to the principles of free speech. This unbridled power allowed Twitter to punish political adversaries and protect partisan allies. They did so with mendacious impunity and little regard for the public interest. If you're having trouble keeping up with the slow drip, drip, drip of the Twitter files release, here's a handy cheat sheet of the ugly details exposed thus far. Twitter files part one. The platform censored the Hunter Biden laptop story in advance of the presidential election, claiming publicly that it violated their hacked policy, knowing full well The laptop wasn't hacked at all. Twitter pretended it might be Russian disinformation, even though that excuse was nothing more than U.S. intelligence disinformation. Twitter took its marching orders from the Biden campaign team, Democratic operatives, and, and this is the important part, the FBI, which was running a Joe Biden protection racket. Twitter Files Part 2. The aforementioned secret blacklist was composed to target vocal conservatives, critics of Biden. Disfavored tweets were prevented from trending. Accounts were suspended based on purely phony grounds. Shadow banning evolved into a powerful political weapon arbitrarily and capriciously deployed for partisan gain. A Stanford doctor, for example, who warned that COVID lockdowns would harm children was blacklisted. His tweets 
were all but entombed. Twitter Files Part 3. Twitter execs moved to deplatform then-President Donald Trump from their social media site in January of 2021, despite no legitimate basis to do so. They previously slapped warning labels on his tweets that were purely pretextual. Internal Slack conversations show that Twitter had been coordinating with federal agencies, including the FBI, DHS, and DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. Messages confirm that the FBI knew in advance that the damning Hunter Biden laptop story would emerge, so the FBI preemptively pressured Twitter to censor it by falsely claiming it was Russian disinformation. Twitter Files Part 4. Pressure builds on January 7th to permanently ban Donald Trump by conjuring up dubious justifications that apply only to him and, quote, distinct from other political leaders. Slack messages among Twitter execs reveal no concern whatsoever for free speech principles or democracy. Their intense campaign to banish Trump is led by Yul Roth, who makes, quote-unquote, progress, in part because Jack Dorsey, the CEO, is AWOL in the South Pacific. Twitter's ban defies its own standards that prohibit interpreting content or intent of a tweet, prompting a junior employee at Twitter to complain of Twitter's tyranny, but to no avail. Twitter Files Part 5. Citing the Capitol riot, Twitter staffers are in an uproar, and they push for Trump to be banned from the site, even though the company found no policy violations by him in any of the president's tweets. The platform employees deliberately misconstrue one of his tweets to suggest he's incited violence, when the plain language of the tweet shows he did no such thing. Monitors in charge of content review resist this. They see nothing wrong with Donald Trump's tweets. One of them writing, I think we'd have a hard time saying this is incitement. Another one messaged, don't see the incitement angle here. Still another warned that censorship can destroy the public conversation. Didn't matter. Trump is banned anyway from Twitter on January 8th. Now my analysis. There are two issues at stake here. They're often confused and conflated. First of all, it's a violation of the First Amendment for government at any level to censor speech either overtly or covertly. Thus, if the FBI manipulated or coerced a proxy such as Twitter to suppress what the agency knew to be a valid story and therefore protected speech, then the Constitution has been breached. Second of all, at the time of the censored laptop story, Twitter was a publicly held company. It's now privately held. It was not and never has been a government agency. Private enterprises are not constrained by the strict construction of the First Amendment. 
Nor was the Biden presidential campaign a government entity when it maneuvered to get Twitter to crush the damaging story and the laptop's incriminating content. Both were free to censor without legal consequence. The moral obligations pose a different concern. Twitter's actions violate the principles of free speech long enshrined in the First Amendment. You might say that its spirit, precepts, and values were molested by unethical Twitter executives. And this was the point made to the social media company by Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna when he cautioned Twitter that its suppression of the laptop story seems a violation of the First Amendment principles. Khanna was right. Our founders cherished free speech in all its good and imperfect forms. Robust debate, even vitriolic disputes and noxious arguments, those are the sustenance of democracy and essential to the security of our republic. It's how constructive change evolves. The airing of grievances lends itself to fitting solutions. And the framers well knew from their own experiences with the British that repressed speech breeds resentment. It's a menace that jeopardizes a stable government. And thus, the best remedy for harmful speech is more speech not enforced silence. Those are the words of the late Justice Louis Brandeis. This is something that the progressive crowd at Twitter can never comprehend. Emboldened by the power they hold, blinded by their liberal bias and political zealousness, they chose to suffocate free expression to advance their own personal interests. In so doing, they laid waste to the valued principles underlying the First Amendment. Moreover, Twitter ignored its stated promise that the platform would be an open forum for the unfettered exchange of ideas, information, and opinion. Instead, executives there callously chose to smother content they didn't like, expel the users, they disdained. Rather than upholding the values of free speech, they misused their site as a punitive political weapon. Thankfully, the offenders, most of them, have been sacked by Elon Musk. In their self-righteousness, they have offered no remorse. Joining me now to talk about it is Carl Zabo, NetChoice Vice President and General Counsel. He is a well-known free speech advocate. And Carl, thank you so much for being here on The Brief. I want to talk to you uh, in particular because the Twitter files show that you and your group warned Twitter that a, quote, bloodbath awaited the platform in Congress over its suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. In fact, you warned the Twitter public policy chief, Lauren Culbertson, quite specifically when they first censored the story. And it's, as I understand it, Carl, it's not just Republicans who were upset, but Democrats as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You know, what we explained in those emails was based on the conversations we were having on the Hill with 
staffers and representatives in the aftermath of the blocking of the Hunter Biden laptop story. And we basically do what we do, which is we tell it how we see it. We told Twitter, guess what? There's some Democrats who are championing the, the blocking of the Hunter Biden laptop story, but Republicans are mad as hell. There is going to be a whirlwind. These are some of the statements that were included in, in the original Twitter files that were released uh, from our emails. And we made it crystal clear that if they continue down this road, that there's going to be a backlash. There's going to be blowback. And that's exactly what happened. And we let our members know about that. Now, one of the things that was shown by that first uh, data dump is that there were some Democrats who are also concerned about this. You saw Representative Ro Khanna, who is about as Democrat as they come, California, raising the alarm on the questions of First Amendment and free speech with the restrictions on the Hunter Biden laptop. And so that's what we were doing. And that's what we were telling Twitter, because, you know, for over 20 years, that's exactly what NetChoice has done. We've activated and we've engaged in promoting free expression and free enterprise on the net. It's what gets me up every single day. And so you saw from those first rounds of Twitter files that Twitter knew about the backlash they knew that there would be repercussions for their actions, and they saw how people like Representative Rokana and NetChoice were kind of warning them about the dangerous path they were treading. You know, I've always been a big fan of NetChoice and your work. I mean, your group has really been at the forefront of advocating for free speech on the net, and and you know, too few people do that, and so I commend you. Uh, for your work. And and frankly, I was happy that it showed up in the Twitter files, the warnings you guys issued, uh, because it's exactly what has come to pass. I mean, the new House leadership is planning hearings, as you predicted, into what tr- Twitter did here and, and all of those who were involved. But isn't this, uh, couldn't this have been easily foreseen? I mean, big tech grew out of control in their arrogance. Uh, they put their feet on the political scales to unduly influence public opinion by controlling speech. And they breached, Carl, their founding promise, didn't they, that, that Twitter would be this forum for the free and unfettered exchange of ideas, information, and opinion. They violated their vow to the public. Yeah, I mean, as, as as a conservative, as an originalist, as somebody who at NetChoice we've been advocating for free speech and free expression for twenty years, it frustrates me. But one of the things that does kind of pull me back a little bit from the brink on that is, at the end of the day, they are a private business and they are free to do whatever they think is best for their users and their customers. And we'll talk about how they they. The, the latest dump and how they seem to have gotten away from that due to some of the wokeism internally. But one of the things that was also revealed from these files that really just does scare me is how much the Democratic National Committee, how much the Biden Presidential Fund, how much the FBI and Department of Homeland Security were engaging with Twitter. And we heard this a little bit from Facebook when Zuckerberg was on with Joe Rogan talking about how the FBI approached them. And 
as you pointed out, we now have Republicans taking the gavel in Congress. There is going to be the whirlwind. There are going to be these hearings. And what do we need out of that? Well, so far, I see we need at least three things. We need one, uh, investigations into what the employees at Twitter, what the leadership at Twitter were told by government. Then we need an oversight hearing with the FBI and Department of Homeland Security to figure out how much they were engaging in coercion of social media platforms, how much the FBI and Department of Homeland Security was engaged in pressuring these businesses to promote or remove content. And then third, what we need is legislation to make sure that this type of government coercion never happens again. And with respect to the third prong, we actually have legislation that is written, that has been introduced and ready to go from Republican leaders like Jim Jordan, like uh, uh, McMorris Rogers and Jim Comer, that would make crystal clear, make it a felony for anyone in the executive branch, whether it's the White House, whether it's the FBI, whether it's Department of Homeland Security or anywhere else to engage in this type of coercion. So we need to do those three things. And I'm looking forward to January 3rd when the new Congress takes over and begins to implement those three steps. You know, um, I agree wholeheartedly. That legislation is mandatory. It has to be done because as we see in the Twitter files, the FBI uh, was meeting weekly with Twitter, with Facebook, other social media companies. I read the 300 plus pages of Elvis Chan's deposition. Uh, He's the FBI agent who was organizing and holding these meetings with Twitter. Um, And, you know, he, he, Chan is the kind of guy, (laughs) and you become convinced if you read his deposition. This is in a uh, related censorship lawsuit brought by two states attorney generals. Chan's the kind of guy who sees a Russian behind every door, right? So his excuse for this is going to be, oh, you know, you know, we're always on alert. The Russians are always engaging in disinformation and misinformation campaigns and so on and so forth. So, so that's going to be his ready excuse. Well, I earnestly believe that the Russians, you know, might have been involved in disseminating this information in advance of the 2020 presidential election. He denies that he actually says, I don't recall if I warned them specifically about the Hunter Biden laptop, although um, Yoel Roth, who was one of the top executives at Twitter, has filed a sworn affidavit saying, yeah, he, he not only warned us about Russian disinformation, but in the context of Hunter Biden and, uh, you know, a laptop potentially. So, uh, and the FBI knew this because they had the laptop since December of 2019 and they buried it, but they'd first looked at it, knew it was legit. And they knew the contents were damning, uh, not just for Hunter Biden, but his father's own complicity that are evidenced in the laptop emails. So what about his excuse? Well, you know, we have a duty to warn companies in America, especially social media, about Russian disinformation. I mean, to me, that's a vapid excuse. But, you know, in a court of law, I suppose it would be an argument. I mean, but it doesn't stop there. You've got the 
letter from the quote-unquote cybersecurity experts, uh, Jim Clapper and, and others, coming out and saying, well, this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation without any evidence to back it up. And so all of this is what really concerns me. This is the type of end run that we've been seeing around the First Amendment from government. Now, remember, the First Amendment prevents, forbids the federal government or any government from promoting or removing speech, forcing you or me to host speech or say things that we don't want or remove things that we don't want to remove. And what you're seeing from a lot of these Twitter files is what is essentially an end run around that prohibition. And they're doing it under the guise of Russian disinformation. They're doing it under the guise of national security. And that's really the question that we need to figure out is how much has the government been pressuring these private businesses to promote and remove content? At the same time, what is also concerning is the accumulation of power that we've seen under the Biden administration. And you've seen kind of these, you know, forever emergency orders. But simultaneously, you're seeing many of the federal agencies under President Biden really go beyond what they are allowed to do. Uh, Let's pick on one federal agency. It's called the Federal Trade Commission. They basically uh, regulate every single business. And they were called upon to investigate Musk's acquisition of Twitter and try to prevent it. And when you have the Biden administration, when you have the federal government going after your business, that is another form of pressure. Because you, as a business operator, want to make sure that your business doesn't get shut down by the government, or the FBI or Department of Homeland Security doesn't decide that you're bad for America and shut you down. And so you are going to kowtow, you're going to capitulate, you're going to do everything you can to get in the Biden administration's good graces. So this is all part of a necessary step to return to what our foundational principles were, what the founders laid out for us in the Constitution, which is a much more limited government which is a return to states' rights, which is a return to power to the people. And that starts with cutting down the size of the federal bureaucracy. There is some also steps being taken by Elon Musk at his new uh, role as head of Twitter to address this problem. Uh, One of the things you alluded to earlier was the uh, uh, latest data dump that shows the rogue woke employees kind of controlling speech online. So Elon Musk has uh, instituted what's called community notes. And this is essentially crowdsourced comments and, and statements about tweets. So instead of having employees at Twitter decide whether something is fake news or, or accurate information, he's returning the power to the people where they can place notes and then you and I can go and vote whether it's helpful or not. And that's the democratization of speech. And that's taking power away from these woke employees and returning it to the users of Twitter. And that can only happen in a free market where you don't have people like the Biden administration putting their fingers on the scale. You know, all of these rogue employees, malefactors, uh, woke, you know, liberal progressives that, you know, were 90 percent of Twitter and, and controlling the content. Um, what I find so in, insidious and despicable about each and every one of them involved is that they were lying about it. 
you know, Twitter executives insisted uh, for so long, oh, you know, we're not rigging the platform to censor conservatives. The Twitter files show that was a lie. Former CEO Jack Dorsey was asked point blank under oath by Congress if, you know, his company was shadow banning prominent Republicans. No, he said uh, that was another lie. Yeah, he doubled down uh, in an interview with Sean Hannity saying, quote, no, we don't shadow ban according to political ideology or viewpoints. Uh, a lie. Not even close to the truth. Um, in fact, Twitter was this giant political censorship machine, and they were lying about it. What they never counted on uh, you know, was a iconoclast billionaire who would pony up big bucks to buy out Twitter, turn it upside down, and empty it uh, of the lies and expose the truth. Uh, you know, I, I've said, and you might agree with this, that Elon Musk deserves a medal for exposing the truth. What do you think? Yeah, you're not the first person to say that. I mean, it's, it's a $43 billion acquisition that he's essentially willing to throw away for the purpose of returning Twitter to what it was. Uh, it It is incredibly philanthropic if Twitter goes belly up. But what I think he's actually doing, remember, Elon Musk has turned around so many businesses and he's an engineer. He has recognized that Twitter was not doing well for a number of years. And right. the same thing was true with Tesla when he when he went into Tesla. Same thing is true with SolarWinds. When he went in there, those were those were companies that were on the decline or loser companies, and he turned them around. And one of the first things he did to turn around Twitter, one of the reasons why you see so many people had been leaving Twitter and now returning to it, is because it was no longer about engineering. It was about politics. And, and the politicians and the political ideology had seized control of Twitter, not the coders, not the engineers. And Elon Musk is at heart an engineer. So the first thing he did when he took over he eradicated about 60% of the staff, sent them packing. He then turned to the remainder and said, you have two choices, get on board or get out the door. And by doing that, he made crystal clear that he was in charge, not the woke employees, and that he would redirect this business in a way that returns to putting engineering first and not making it a platform advancing one political ideology or the other. And I think one of the things he's done in doing that is he's encouraged and reminded CEOs across the country that this woke ideology may not be what is in the best interest of their shareholders, best interest of their business. And it, one of the things that I find one of the great uh, almost ironies of this whole thing is one of the latest data dumps comes from Barry Weiss. And Barry Weiss was a senior editor at the New York Times who was run out of that newspaper because of the woke ideologies at the New York Times. And instead, while the New York Times is declining, she's creating a new platform for, for content. So hopefully, Elon Musk, by giving power back to the people, by kind of returning Twitter to what it was, and by inspiring other CEOs to take a page out and do what's best for the business, not what's best for woke employees, that's where I, I really hope he is blazing a path forward for all of us. 
You know, Twitter apparently didn't like the pejorative invidious term shadow ban. <laughs> so, you know, they said, well, uh, let, let's think of something up. Uh, so they came up with a, a synonymous phrase. They called it visibility filtering by any other name. It's shadow banning. And what they did, and we found this out in part two of the Twitter files, they created a secret blacklist that targeted vocal conservatives, critics of Joe Biden. And what they did was they prevented those tweets from trending. And in fact, some accounts were suspended based on purely phony grounds. And and this shadow banning or or visibility uh, filtering uh, became this behemoth at Twitter that arbitrarily, capriciously uh, was deployed for purely partisan gain. So that's another practice. What do we do about that sort of thing? It's one of those things that is is kind of difficult to address because let's you know you do want to let uh, businesses promote what they want to promote and and remove what they want to remove. We see it every time we go into the supermarket and suddenly there is a new product at the end of the aisle because the supermarket wants to sell more of Coca Cola. Say, so we need to be careful with that. But what you saw at Twitter was a handful of people with their hands on the controls who maybe shouldn't have had their hands on the controls. And as a result, we now learn what transpired because of that. But you already saw the market correcting for it because Twitter was in decline because th- this woke ideology was taking over Twitter. And, and you had people who were not getting as promoted, getting shadow banned. And they were then leaving for new platforms. Because remember, simultaneously, while Twitter was losing users, Rumble, Parler, uh, True Social, these other third-party social media platforms were gaining users. So people were voting with their feet, and that's the free market working. We do want to encourage more transparency, but simultaneously, that transparency needs to come from how much the government was leaning on these private businesses. Because as an originalist, at the end of the day, uh, as frustrating as some of the content moderation decisions are made that our members make, that is their right as a private business. It's the same attitude I have towards Supreme Court decisions like Hobby Lobby, Masterpiece Cakes, and Citizens United. But the concern and the thing that scares me and keeps me up at night and the thing that NetChoice has been working to fight for 20 years is when that government, when the government comes in and starts putting their hands on the levers. And let's not forget Shortly after Musk announced his acquisition of Twitter back in the spring, we saw the creation and announcing of the Disinformation Governance Board, led by uh, Mary Poppins, if everyone remembers that. (laughs) That's Orwellian. That's the thing that scares me and keeps me up at night. And that's the thing I fight against. Because if Twitter makes decisions that I don't like, I will just quit Twitter and I will go somewhere else. And lots of people were doing that. But the one thing I can't do is quit the United States of America. And so that's where we all need to stay vigilant. That's where the investigations need to start to figure out how much the government was working behind the scenes to suppress free speech on the Internet. 
You know, you bring up a, a, a good point. After 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was created by Congress, an act of Congress, and it grew into this all-powerful Goliath uh, with unlimited resources and immense authority to basically do anything and everything uh, you know, in the name of stopping terrorism, but they've gone well beyond that. And you bring up the DHS misbegotten disinformation board by, you know, Mary Poppins. When that became public, of course, under pressure, DHS disbanded it. But it would appear now they have reconstituted it secretly under sort of a different name, a different guise. And that's what worries me, the secrecy that has been condoned by, you know, government, that stuff we don't even know about. And, you know, their excuse is always, well, you know, it's national security. We can't, we can't reveal what we're doing. That is frightening to me. Is it to you? 100%. Uh, in, in a past life, I worked for the federal government. I worked for what was called the Office of Government Ethics. And the thing that was instilled in me there and, and that I would actually go out and make sure people did, government, public service, public trust at the end of the day. And one of the things that you've seen systemically throughout this nation is a lot loss of trust in public institutions. And the lack of transparency that you just outlined is one of the things that causes that. Meetings are supposed to be recorded. Financial transfers are supposed to be recorded. They're supposed to be publicly accessible. We have what are called Freedom of Information Act requests that should make things available. And time and time again, we have seen files disappear. We've seen answers not be transparent. And that's how you undermine trust in the system. So all this loops back around whether it started 9-11, before that, Department of Homeland Security, FBI. We need to reestablish transparency in the system. We need to remind government that they work for the people. They don't work for a political party. And I think the steps that we outlined earlier of getting the executives to explain what they were told by government, getting the government to say, what they told social media platforms to remove and, and promote, and then getting legislation passed that makes crystal clear that government serves all Americans, not just one political party. That's how we begin writing the ship. Carl Zabo, a Net Choice Vice President and General Counsel, many thanks for being with us on The Brief. And that is The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.